Welcome to the Capital Integrative Health Podcast, a podcast dedicated to transforming the consciousness around what it means to be healthy and understanding the root causes of both disease and wellness. I am Dr. Andrew Wong, co-founder of Capital Integrative Health, an integrative practice committed to expanding access to holistic root cause medicine to the global community. Today we are joined by Dr. Mark Davis. Mark is a naturopathic gastroenterologist here at Capital Integrative Health who specializes in inflammatory bowel disease and has clinical expertise in fecal microbiota transplantation and helminthic therapy. He is also a former faculty in the School of Naturopathic Medicine at Maryland University of Integrative Health. Mark enjoys working with his patients to find solutions using an integrative, evidence-informed approach. Join us for a conversation about how naturopathic gastroenterology addresses gut health in conjunction with approaches like fecal microbiota transplant and helminthic therapy. If you suffer from gut dysfunction in general or conditions like inflammatory bowel disease specifically, don't miss this conversation. Welcome, Mark, to the podcast. Thank you so much for being on today. It's great to be here. Yes, and uh, you are obviously uh, part of Capital Integrative Health. You have your practice called IBD Specialty Clinic. Um, your practice. And let's talk about first your introduction to naturopathic medicine and what motivated you to pursue the ND route. Oh, great. Yeah. So I, um, I come from a long line of doctors and nurses. My uh, great grandfather and my grandfather and grandmother all were educated in the University of Maryland system uh, for uh, the medical school and the nursing school. And my mom's a nurse and siblings are doctors. And um, so growing up, I, I, always, I always knew that's not what I want to do. <laughs> is what I thought. I was like, what they're doing, what I see my family doing is prescribing drugs and doing surgical procedures. And I was like, if I want to help people, I think I want to help people avoid that uh, and not do that. So I thought, no way, I'm not going to do medicine. Um, so I thought it would be the healing power of food that would help me be a healer. And so I thought I was going to be a nutritionist. And I worked at restaurants for many years. Whole Foods, restaurants, vegetarian, pescatarian, sustainable seafood, all kinds of stuff. Um, and I loved that work. But then I discovered naturopathic medicine. And uh, when I realized there was something that could allow me to practice the art of diagnosis and assessing and treating the whole person uh, and still help me with my goal of helping people avoid drugs and surgery, I knew I had found the profession for me. So and it's awesome. been a great fit for this past. Yeah. Decade. And then and then I think we, we, we said this in the intro, but you graduated from naturopathic um, from NUNM, National University of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland. Correct. Yep. Correct. Yep. And um, great school. And I, I think um, what did you like most about uh, Portland? And I, I mean, this is a bit off topic, but we always go off topic on this podcast. So uh, <laughs> Portland versus Maryland. Let's just talk about about that a little bit. I love both places. Um, uh, Portland was a great fit for me in terms of the culture of outdoorsiness and whole foodsiness and all my neighbors around me um, composted and rode bicycles and did other things that are good cultural fits for me. And, uh, and everybody knows what a naturopathic doctor is. And these have been licensed there for 100 years. In Maryland, naturopathic doctors have been licensed for, I think, five years. And lots of people have never heard of uh, what I do. And there's a great part to that too, introducing people to something new. But um, you know, it's it's a different cultural environment. I love the social diversity of where we live in Montgomery County, way different than Portland. 
Um, and I love being close to family. I've got my parents and my sister and uh, nieces and nephews and all kinds of people right around here. Uh, and I love working at Capital Integrative Health. Yes, we love having you here. Yes. And I believe where you live in, in Maryland, I believe, is is also a little more woodsy. It's a bit more, uh, I know there's a strong herbalist community, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. We've got some nice woods more right natural. in the backyard we like to hike in. Nice. Yeah. Do you ever pick mushrooms or have a go out looking for different... Um, I am not qualified to pick mushrooms. <laughs> we 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 pick some other things. Yeah, wood sorrel and nettle and other great things to grow around here. But uh, yeah, you really have to know what you're doing for mushrooms. Right, right. It's good to uh, get get some uh, antihistamine tea there with the uh, nettles. Yeah, nice. yes. So um, so I think you talked a little bit about this already. But what do you enjoy most about what you do as a naturopathic gastroenterologist? Well, I mean, I guess I love being good at what I do, like that's always gives everyone a good feeling. And so focusing in on one organ system and especially like I do on people with inflammatory bowel disease, I feel like it allows me to uh, get really good at assessing and treating one thing. And so I get to feel good about that. And I, in general, I just, I love puzzles and every person is truly unique and they are their own, their own puzzle and their health situation is a puzzle that changes over time. And Getting to work on that puzzle with them is just a, a joy. Yeah, I think there's this image in the universe of like, you know, a thousand different diamonds and or crystals, you know, you could say, and, and it's like a kaleidoscope. And that's how it's amazing working with different individuals and how unique and beautiful each one is. Agreed. Yeah. So um, as, as you were mentioning, you are very good at what you do. In fact, a world-class expert in the conditions that you work with. So let's talk about that, for, go, go into that broadly first. Uh, what conditions do you work with, especially as a naturopathic GI doctor? And then I do want to ask you a bit uh, more generally about, about IBS and reflux too. Yeah, great. So first I, I want to talk about that word gastroenterologist and what it means. So in conventional medicine, uh, when we say a gastroenterologist, at its core, it just means a doctor who focuses on helping people with gastrointestinal disease. But in practice, in conventional medicine, that means a doctor who's graduated medical school, then done a three-year internal medicine residency, and then a three-year gastroenterology fellowship. So that's what it means in conventional medicine. And in naturopathic medicine, we are a much um, smaller profession without as much infrastructure. So we're still building out a lot of that residency and fellowship type structure. So the core meaning of naturopathic gastroenterologist is the same, a naturopathic doctor who helps people with GI disease. Um, but in terms of the fellowship, well, I'm excited to, uh, to announce, I don't know if you know this, Dr. Wong, but um, I, I helped found the um, Gastroenterology Association of Naturopathic Physicians about seven or eight years ago. And I haven't been on the board of directors for a couple of years, but just this year, our fellowship project reached fruition. So uh, in 2022, for the first time, people can uh, people who've been practicing or done a residency for long enough, seeing gastro patients who have uh, cases reviewed by uh, peers and elders in the profession, can sit for a naturopathic gastroenterology board exam. So we can be board certified fellows of the American Board of Naturopathic Gastroenterology. Yes, so I'm that's so that exciting. Well, congrats on yep. finally getting that up. And I know it's probably been, like you said, a couple of years in the works. I know there are naturopathic oncologist. We have Dr. Keats here at yep. CIH. Are there yeah. any other fellows, uh, fellowships? Yeah. Yep. There's a, uh, uh, so the oncology fellowship is mm -hmm. the first. There's a, a endocrinology fellowship. There's oh, a right. pediatric fellowship. 
Um, those are the only ones I can think. And now we have the gastro one. Yeah, and maybe that's one more. really great to have the credentialing and the, the infrastructure yeah. there to support the evolution of naturopathic GI. And the other thing about gastroenterology in general, is it's such a broad term. Like when you think about cardiology, you think about the heart or the vessels. You think about neurology as the brain. But, you know, there's like... I don't know how many organs are there in the GI tract. There's tons of. Oh, right. There's you know, a lot. I mean, right. mouth and esophagus and stomach and small intestine and large intestine and the liver and the pancreas. And there's a lot. And, and of course, in naturopathic and functional medicine, integrative medicine as well, it, you know, we always think about how the gut is the root of health and can also cause a lot of disease. And that's what Hippocrates said many, many years ago, right? So, yep, so the gut's really, true. you know, one of the most, if not the most important organ here, as I'm sure you would <laughs> talk about. Um, yeah. Every organ's important, but certainly the gut is up there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I have colleagues in the uh, naturopathic gastroenterology community. Well, there's just a lot of diversity in what we treat. And, and um, even when we're working on, like we, we had our conference a couple of weekends ago, and one of the main lectures was gastroenterology and mental health and how those two interact. And uh, another one was gastroenterology and autoimmune disease and how those interact. So uh, really the gut health does interact with every organ system in the body. There's so much to talk about. We are definitely going to have to talk on a, another podcast, even though we're talking today mostly about um, some of your specialties. I, I do want to talk about um, irritable bowel syndrome for a second. You know, this affects, you know, and statistically, um, it, it says, you know, up to 12% of the population. It's probably much more than that. But um, what is irritable bowel syndrome? You know, why is it important? And then, you know, we think of it, of course, in the type of medicine we do in general as a label, as a, more of a diagnostic yeah. label rather than as a root cause. Yeah. So um, I, I often call IBS or irritable bowel syndrome a hundred things with one name. And um, what it means is essentially that you have changes in bowel frequency or consistency with certain types of uh, abdominal discomfort that lasts for at least a certain amount of time. And you talked about all the organs that go into the digestive uh, process. And IBS can be about what's happening in your small intestine. It can be about what's happening in your large intestine. It can be about what's happening in your stomach. It can be about what's happening in your central nervous system or even with the immune system. So that type of discomfort, like you said, 12%, I, I've seen 20%, one out of five people as a common number, uh, that can be caused by many, many different types of things. And therefore, there are many, many different approaches to helping somebody with that type of discomfort between um, uh, dietary testing and other types of assessment um, and uh, dietary interventions and herbal interventions and probiotics. There's just a million ways to help people with IBS. Have you, as you alluded to with the nervous system as well, you know, the gut-brain connection, right? So in a way, we could call irritable bowel syndrome also potentially irritable brain syndrome, right? There's sometimes oh, brain sometimes, inflammation can cause. Absolutely. Sometimes the, the best way to help somebody with IBS is to work on supporting their nervous system. Yes, because we know the nervous system kind of downstream affects the gut too. Absolutely. And yeah. And there's versa. a real back and forth. Back and forth, bidirectional. Exactly. Correct. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you are an expert in a few uh, things, uh, many things, but we'll, we'll list some of them here and then just kind of go through them. So we'll start with um, inflammatory bowel disease. Now, um, irritable bowel syndrome, like you said, is a diagnostic label with 100 causes. And one of those causes could be inflammatory bowel disease, which is a bit more... Uh, you know, there's some pathology involved, there's some inflammation involved, a, a little more serious, you know, I would say, what is IBD? And then what are some of the root causes of IBD that yeah. you found? 
So IBD stands for inflammatory bowel disease, and it's much less common. Only about one out of 200 people in this country has uh, one of the two major types of IBD, and those are ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And what they have in common is uh, there is detectable inflammation and usually ulceration in the digestive tract. For ulcerative colitis, that's just in the colon. And for Crohn's disease, that can be anywhere in the digestive tract from the mouth or even around the mouth, all the way through the esophagus, the stomach, the small bowel, and the large bowel, to the anus or just around the anus and perianal disease. And um, there's usually a fair amount of pain involved. There's uh, often bowel frequency, diarrhea, although occasionally there can be constipation. Uh, and there's often a fair amount of blood loss. Like I have a seven-year-old uh, with Crohn's disease that I'm working with right now who's going in today for a blood transfusion because she's lost so much blood through, uh, you know, rectally that um, she, just, she just needs some additional blood in her system. Um, so that's what IBD is. And um, there are a couple of other more unusual types, but we rarely see those. So ulcerative colitis and Crohn's are the major kinds. And there are some genetic links uh, that people with certain families and certain genes I have, but genes are necessary but not sufficient. So certain types of um, ways that we get inflamed and that our immune system can act and that our um, mucus layers in our gut can be built because of our genes can predispose us to IBD, but then we also need environmental triggers and lifestyle factors to kick us into that hyperinflammation and then to keep us there. So when we're working on treating, we, can, we can't change somebody's genes, but we can change what's going on in the microbiome and in their environment and lifestyle and uh, how their immune system is. So, so just to recap what you just said, Dr. Davis, uh, you can have genetics that might set someone up for uh, inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, either Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, but those genes don't necessarily have to be expressed based on the environment that, and lifestyle, either choices or experiences that person might have. That's absolutely right. Yeah, people can have the genes. And in fact, everyone has, who has it has the genes since they were born. Some people, like my seven-year-old patient, start getting symptoms when they're 11 months old, like she did, or even younger. Um, I, I had a patient who first started getting symptoms in her 70s, um, and she never had IBD symptoms before that. So we can come on at any age, although it's most common to uh, start getting symptoms in your 20s and 30s. So is it true that when, when someone gets treated with IBD, let's say, in a, a naturopathic way, potentially there's some epigenetics involved that the genes start to turn off and then the inflammatory genes and that's how people get better? Or is there another mechanism there? We think that is part of the mechanism. Okay. Yeah, um, there are a lot of mechanisms through which we help people. Mm -hmm. Tissue healing, tissue rebuilding, microbiome changing, immune yeah. system calming, but epigenetics seems like it's one of, one of those ways. Great, so what are some of the approaches that you take when working with, with patients with IBD? Well, I always tell my patients there's five phases of treatment. Phase number one is make sure you are safe in an outpatient setting. Uh, there's times when I talk with a patient and I'm like, well, it's time for us to stop talking so you can call an ambulance because you're not safe in an outpatient setting and that's the most important thing. So that's always phase one. Phase two is clinical remission, no symptoms anymore. It's easier to say than to do and it's often a long process, um, but getting people to clinical remission, that's phase two. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of clinicians would stop there. Oh my goodness, my patients have no symptoms. I'm happy, we're, we're done here. Uh, but for me, that's phase two. Phase three is what we call serologic remission, meaning when we test biomarkers, blood tests like ESR and CRP, 
stool tests like fecal calprotectin and other things, when we look at those biomarkers, they're all normal. Because you can be symptom-free with elevated biomarkers, and that is evidence that you may be at increased risk of getting colon cancer down the line. Mm. If you have Crohn's, you might get uh, narrowing strictures or obstructions. You can get what are called fistulae, where um, inflammation makes a tunnel from your intestines to the bladder or the even vagina or another part. Even if not symptomatic, part. you're saying. Even the, if not the, symptomatic. The serologic positivity, the inflammation. So That's for right. So fecal carprotectin, also for the things like ASCA and, and those type of things too? Well, um, that's a good question. I don't use ASCA and Pianca, um, although those levels can get larger and smaller. I don't use those as biomarkers to track inflammatory levels okay. um, because they're good, great indications of the flavor of inflammation someone is having, but not great indicators of how severe Severity that inflammation is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like Calpatechnin. So phase uh, three is serologic remission. Phase four is histologic remission, which means when your gastroenterologist goes in with a colonoscope uh, or an upper endoscope or both and takes biopsies and the pathologist looks at the tissues, they say, there is no inflammation in those tissues. Maybe there's some evidence of past inflammation, but no current inflammation. And we call that deep remission or histological remission. And it is a great prognosis for the future that you're much, much more likely to stay in remission durably if you get that deep remission. Um, so nice. I love it when we get there. Yeah. That's phase four. And then phase five is just maintenance, where we run some of those biomarker tests every three to six months to be able to predict a flare coming before you get symptoms and, and make sure we're doing whatever we need to do to uh, Got it. So I want to go back to that. And that's really great. I mean, it does offer hope for some people with IBD, let's say, or they have IBS. They're not sure if they have IBD, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So back to the phase one, just so the listeners kind of know, if someone has red flags, you know, so to speak, red flags, it's like, okay, you need to go to the ER. You need to, this can't be an outpatient kind of thing. What are some of those kind of quote unquote red flags that you so, would say? So they actually, interestingly enough, vary per individual, but some examples might be uh, more than 10 bowel movements a day. Now I'll pause there because I've had patients having 20 or 30 bowel movements a day who say, no, this has happened to me a lot in the past. I'm not going to go to the hospital, even though I'm losing enough fluids that, you know, I hear you telling me this could be dangerous. It isn't always dangerous, but if you're having more than 10 bowel movements a day, you need to check in with me, if I'm your doctor or whoever your doctor is, to say, am I still safe to be outpatient? Um, dizziness uh, can be a sign that you've lost so much fluids that you're getting hypotensive, and that could be dangerous to your heart and other organ systems, so you need to go get some IV fluids or something else. Mm -hmm. um, if your hemoglobin gets low enough, and again, it's more about the rate of drop of hemoglobin than an absolute number, but below seven is a, you know, a great example of... Um, you know, being 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 low enough that uh, we might can be concerned and want to give you blood transfusions, um, uh, or just if your pain is a constant eight, nine, or ten out of ten most of the day. These are all reasons that you might need to go to the emergency room and not uh, not so stay out. So severe uncontrolled inflammation, dehydration, uh, blood loss to the point of of significant anemia might affect the heart, the vascular system, things like that. Okay. Exactly. And then in phase four, which is histologic remission, I'm curious if there's statistics in the literature on, uh, or in your own practice experience of, you know, how many people with IBD get to that point of either, uh, I guess, serologic or histologic remission? That is a great question. And I actually don't know the statistics from the literature or my own practice. Um, 
uh, I, I would say it is, uh, it is uncommon enough that it is a big celebration for me and my patients in my practice when we get there. What I've found, it's, it seems like just, you know, as a primary care doctor with people with IBD, people like kind of go into remission a bit and then they might flare up again depending on what's happening. Maybe their yeah. diet changes, stress, things like that. Absolutely true. This is a relapsing remitting disease. It, okay. it comes in waves where uh, symptoms get worse, symptoms get better. Even aside from stress or diet or other things that can uh, trigger us, uh, it just it just waxes and wanes. And so, and, but that's clinical remission. That's what we're talking about. Symptoms, right? Histological remission. Once you get there, that tends to be more durable. I'm sorry. A serologic remission tends to be more durable. And then histologic remission, when we get there, and sometimes we do, that is the most durable of all. Super. So what are the favorite approaches in general, uh, if you could outline for us, uh, that you take Great. when working with either Crohn's or UC? And do you treat them a little differently? Just kind of curious about that. They are a little different. Yeah, what they have in common is their inflammation of the digestive tract with ulceration, often bleeding, pain, etc. cetera. Um, what they have different uh, between them is ulcerative colitis is always just in the colon, and it's always contiguous meaning the inflammation starts in the rectum and it moves without any skips up the, up the colon. Uh, Crohn's disease, sometimes in the colon, sometimes not, sometimes part in the colon, part somewhere else, and it has what we call skip lesions. So um, it's not contiguous. It can be uh, in various places, uh, diseased tissue with healthy tissue in between. Um, they respond differently to certain things. For example, um, tobacco, nicotine, very, very bad for people with Crohn's disease but actually helps keep people with ulcerative colitis in remission, which I never recommend someone start smoking, but uh, I have recommended they delay quitting until they get into better yeah. control. We're not, uh, we're not uh, advocating uh, keeping smoking for those of you out there who are smoking. <laughs> but, no. Uh, yeah. Here, here's a note. I uh, ran into a patient who had um, inflammatory bowel disease and, and associated autoimmune lung condition, and it was getting so bad she was having to stop some of her physical activity, and her gastroenterologist said, look, this is ulcerative colitis related. I'm going to recommend you start smoking tobacco. I'd never heard of that recommendation before, but because it was a lung thing, get that nicotine in there. But she flared so bad with smoking, they changed the diagnosis to Crohn's. Huh. So, interesting. Yeah. So it anyway, could be used as a diagnostic tool, I suppose. Possibly, in theory. possibly. <laughs> we, we probably a wouldn't bit. want to do that. but Yeah, but yeah. I don't use smoking as an intervention, but things I do use as interventions Diet is a huge one. There are all kinds of uh, interventional diets, including fermented foods in some cases, probiotics and prebiotics, uh, lifestyle medicine, your habits, your exercise, your sleep. Herbal medicine is something I use a lot. Wormwood and mastic and green tea extracts and many, many other herbs. Uh, nutritional therapies, vitamin D and butyrate, which actually butyrate directly crosses through the cell membrane and affects our epigenetic. It goes nice. right to the cell nucleus. Do, do, uh, do you like butyrate in supplement form or, or through indirectly through foods and stuff? Both, but mm -hmm. uh, but I use it a fair amount supplementarily, gi mm -hmm. giving it orally um, in increasing doses up to four grams a day with my IBD patients and sometimes with IBS patients, which is another evidence-informed uh, protocol. Yes, back to the diet for a second, because we know that nutrition is really important here. Um, with with ibd but in general do you feel like that sort of plan um is also maybe applicable to other people with gut issues too like more of an anti-inflammatory diet yes i love like i like i told you before nutrition was my first love that worked in restaurants i 
work towards becoming a nutritionist initially before I found naturopathic medicine. So I love food as medicine and it is so individualized um, what diet will help one, per one person. There are specialty diets like the specific carbohydrate diet, semi-vegetarian diet, autoimmune paleo diet, low to no sulfur diet, uh, and we can guide diets by IgG or IgG4 testing. So there's so many different diets and um, we can make our best guesses as to what diet will help one person. But I always tell people, we're starting off on a diet blueprint and we're gonna individualize that for you based on exactly what's going on for you and how you respond to a therapeutic right. diet. Everyone's so, a bit unique and um, also maybe depend on the state of their gut, right? Isn't it true that based on the state of their gut inflammation, they might be able to tolerate more or less foods? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, generally I tell people we want to have a whole foods diet that's minimally processed in order to um, feed our healthy gut microbiome and have general health. But there are times when my patients with inflammatory bowel disease are so inflamed, I tell them the opposite. I, I want you to have a low fiber diet of highly processed foods. If you're gonna have white rice, it can only be white rice. I want you to have a, you know, very, very processed things in order to decrease your microbiome diversity and let your immune system calm down. Hmm. So it really depends on uh, where so a person is at would, with their gut would actually health. benefit from a, a little bit more refined uh, starches at times, it sounds like. Yeah, that's a therapeutic so diet. I mean, yeah. I, I generally tell people, you want whole foods, but right. there are times when I tell my IBD patients, avoid whole foods. Like if they're in a flare or something like that. In a flare, yeah. Got it. Where are you on curcumin and, and fish oil or omega-3s? How, how does that play a role in the therapeutic? Okay, um, great. So. Yep, big fan of, of, of curcumin, which is uh, the primary anti-inflammatory extract of turmeric. I love whole turmeric too. Um, and I, I love the safety and efficacy profile of turmeric and curcumin for patients with IBD and other things too, including uh, auto-inflammatory joint disease and other things. Tur turmeric um, will stay in your kitchen counter, uh, orange or yellow, so just be uh, be aware of that. <laughs> that very well. true. I have experienced <laughs> that myself. Yes. Yeah. And, and what about... Uh, do you like uh, more like eating fish or fish oil or algae oil or where are you on that? Yep. I definitely have uh, used all of those interventions with people. Um, I, I will say there are different amounts of fish oil that can help different individuals and people with different conditions. And in my experience and my read of the literature for IBD patients, it is very, very high doses, like 10 grams oh, wow. in a day or more. So that is a substantial commitment to fish oil. Now, fish oil has other good side benefits that sometimes we enjoy, including benefits for the heart and decreases in total cardiovascular mortality. Uh, although you probably know there's um, uh, emerging literature showing that for people with atrial fibrillation, uh, it, uh, large amounts of fish oils may actually aggravate mm. atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. But in general, for cardiovascular disease, fish oil is a big benefit. So if someone can commit to those big doses, which is uh, you know a two tablespoon dose three or four times a day, depending on the concentration yeah. uh, of the fish oil you get. So that's, that's a lot of fish oil. And, and then we do know we have some cardiovascular patients on aspirin or Plavix or something like that. They, they have to be, uh, as you know, have to be uh, careful with the interaction with meds or, or even other Absolutely. supplements that have blood thinning effects. Yeah, yeah. So I find myself using fish oils not as much because yeah. of the high doses and sometimes interactions. But yeah. for some patients, it's a great intervention. Great, great. And certainly we know that there's uh, most of us have a, a the, the omega-6 to 3 ratio is too high, like this whole idea of the inflammatory, you know, aspect of the fatty acid ratios. 
Um, exactly. Great. Well, we can also segue into, I, I do want to talk a little bit about gluten. And, and I think you have, I, I know you have this case that you, you may want to share, but, um, you know, uh, where are you on gluten? And, you know, we know that this is a, a big topic, of course, in the last, certainly last 10 years. Um, uh, should everyone with IBD or, or even IBS for that matter, and that's, a, that's opening up a can of worms no pun intended for the next part of our talk today yeah but um you know in terms of gluten where are you on gluten and um should people be eliminating or or should people be eating a pizza every day yeah so that is also very individualized and um i think when we look at our our ancestry um and different cultures throughout the world there are cultures who have included gluten grains in traditional and whole foods oriented diet for centuries and manage to live healthfully like that. So I don't think everybody needs to exclude gluten grains from their diet. Other people have ancestral groups and they may have gotten a genetic roll of the dice that makes them inherently intolerant to gluten. And in fact, if we look at the genetics, HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8, maybe about 40% of us are positive for one of those. So I think about at least 40% of us have the potential to have very strong immune reactions to gluten. Does that mean we all do? No. Um, so I think gluten-containing grains can be a good food and part of a helpful diet, um, but for some people, very, very important to avoid it. can make huge differences in health through avoiding gluten. Um, I have a dear friend and colleague, Dr. Lisa Shaver. She's a naturopathic doctor, specializes in uh, celiac and gluten intolerance of many kinds. And she has lectured in the past on the ethics and importance of not giving a gluten avoidant diet without first ruling out celiac disease. Because if somebody doesn't eat gluten, you can't reliably test them for celiac disease. So, uh, and then you don't know if you need to uh, uh, encourage their family to get tested, um, if they have additional risk for other autoimmune diseases, all these other things. So I test a lot of people for celiac. Sometimes even if they've been tested in the past, I say, you know what, I'm just gonna test you again and make sure we're giving you the right tests. Uh, uh, I mean, everyone at CIH orders the right tests, but in the past, older sets of tests were ordered at other clinics. So, right. um, so I don't think gluten is a bad food, but it is definitely bad for some people. And we try and figure out who that is. Now, are you ordering the celiac conference panel plus the genetics? Like I think you do Prometheus maybe, but or, or, uh, uh, or, or is it just the celiac should be enough for most people? Panel. Well, um, it depends on where the person is and if they're like really trying to give up gluten. And okay. so if we order the, uh, the the genetics and they're negative for the genetics, they can't have celiac. Yeah. So it, it's not worth ordering the antibodies. I see. <laughs> um, yeah. So right. but if they're positive for the genetics, well, then I definitely will order the antibodies. OK, got it. Got it. And let's talk about um, a little more about uh uh, another of your specialties, and you are a world-class expert in uh, something called FMT, or fecal microbiota transplant. So let's talk about that, just define that. I don't know if everyone's heard of that. So what is FMT yeah. and what conditions okay. is it helpful yeah. for? This is a passion of mine. Yeah. I, I've been working with this for over a decade and obsessed with it. Um, at, right when I graduated with my naturopathic medical degree, I bought the website fecalmicrobiotatransplantation.com because I knew I wanted to be involved with this. Did therapy. you know, like, four years before, like, you know, first year ND student, did you know, like, oh, this is what? When did oh, you Oh, no, decide? no. I remember the moment I discovered it. I was, uh, I, I was um, working on a shift, uh, trying to help out an IBD patient and trying to think what we could do to help this severely ill 
person and I was scouring the literature on PubMed in the hallway at my school. And I came across these papers from, um, I think it was 2003 by Dr. Thomas Barodi, an Australian gastroenterologist. And he wrote about using um, uh, this, this therapy that I'll describe, fecal microbiota transplantation, uh, on some dozens of patients with inflammatory bowel disease and putting a large number of them into clinical remission. And the reasons behind it made so much sense to me. It blew me away. I right away knew I want to be involved with this. I want to do this. That's incredible. Um, That's great. Yeah. So the process is, well, here's the story, is that we all have trillions of microbes in our gut, trillions of the T. That's so many. And for some people, the lack of certain good microbes or the uh, overabundance of certain bad ones or just an imbalance between the two can make people sick or sometimes so sick they could die. So your gut microbiome has a lot to do with your health. And for some of those people, giving you an influx of new healthy colon bacteria can make your, uh, your gut ecosystem correct again and remove some or all of the symptoms that were making you sick or sometimes very severely ill previously. And the, the most effective way to do that is to collect stool from a healthy screened donor and school, stool is two thirds bacteria by dry weight. So we um, uh, process the stool in order to concentrate the bacterial portion. And then we administer that stool extract full of healthy colon bacteria to the sick patient, either as an enema or through a colonoscope or through capsules, or there's some other way. These are live bacteria, yes. Live bacteria and, and trillions of them. And the difference it can have on people's health can be profound. There's a, an infection called C. diff colitis that I know you're familiar with that kills tens of thousands of Americans every year, every year. And giving a, and, and uh, antibiotics can often help the people who get this. And we give antibiotics for this. And maybe two thirds of the time when you give antibiotics for it, people get well and they stay well. But that leaves a third of people who end up getting sicker and sicker and in tens of thousands of people's cases dying from it. And giving fecal transplant durably cures it at least 90% of the time. Yeah. At least 90%. Just a little so tangent I've... on the C. diff. Do you ever find that the high-dose probiotics like Sacbilardi is an alternative to the antibiotics? So uh, I've treated a lot of patients with C. diff, and I have found some patients with mildly active C. diff colitis who high doses of probiotics along with berberine and a clean diet okay. can get rid of their C. diff. I've never seen that work with moderate to severely active. If they're symptomatic. Sometimes we'll see on, you know, we know these DNA-based stool testing, the C. diff yep. is positive, so there's some microbiome imbalances, and often it allows yep. the clostridia to overgrow. For the asymptomatic patients, would you say that, that probiotics would be sort of the first line there? I, I, I typically yeah. tend to not treat the asymptomatic patients with antibiotics. Anyway. Yeah, same, same. C. diff is an interesting microbe. Um, I, there's a... Um, a Canadian microbiologist, a friend and colleague of mine, who, who says that C. diff is kind of like teenagers at the subway stop. That if it's crowded at the subway stop and there's a lot of people, they're going to mind their manners and they're not going to do anything. But if everybody gets on the subway and leaves, which is what happens when you give some antibiotics that deplete the gut microbiome, all the adults leave, the teenagers go crazy and they're knocking over trash cans and they're spray panning and whatever and causing trouble. So all, so, all, all teenagers have behavior problems? Is that what we're saying? No, <laughs> <Just> no. <kidding. laughs> uh, but there's the, some, the some well-behaved teenagers out there. There are some. Yeah. I have, I have oh, a couple good, myself. Good, nice. actually, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so C. diff in tiny amounts in the right gut ecosystem 
can actually be not problematic. They do secrete small amounts of toxin, but your body processes it. Gut cells feel very well. Um, and it actually is not a problem and I, I don't treat it. Sometimes I will try to look at it as a sign of, uh, you know, maybe there's a little imbalance starting and use probiotics yeah. or sometimes berberine all depends on the patient and, and what's okay. going on to them. Yeah. Great. Um, so, so getting back to FMT. So, um, you know, this is a passion of yours. You're a world-class expert in this. You've been doing it for, for over 10 years now. Um, what conditions is it helpful for? And maybe if you want to share a, a patient, uh, sort of a case study success yeah. story too. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, um, uh, well, we know it works very, very well for CF, better than anything else that we have as, as a tool as clinicians. Uh, it also works very, very well for my practice focus, inflammatory bowel disease. People with ulcerative colitis, Crohn's colitis, and even Crohn's in other parts of the body can, uh, can have dramatic, dramatic responses. Um, and I've used this hundreds of times with inflammatory bowel disease patients um, with many, many cases of good benefit. Um, fascinatingly, there's also emerging evidence that it can help people with certain types of neurodegenerative conditions, including multiple sclerosis and maybe Parkinson's and maybe autism spectrum disorders. Um, and there's really, really interesting literature there. And I've seen all of those in my own practice. Um, there are other hyperinflammatory conditions like graft versus host disease, and uh, it can help hepatic encephalopathy and, and, and other things. Um, and then interestingly enough, it can help many people with IBS. Like we said before, IBS is a hundred things with one name. So it certainly isn't appropriate for everyone with IBS, but there are cases that I've seen mm -hmm. get really, really great responses. It's a big target. I have so many sub questions based on your <laughs> amazing answer there. So well, number one is um, let's kind of go through some logistics of, let's say a patient has IBD, so maybe let's yeah. say Crohn's, and maybe they don't want to go on biologics. I do want to talk about that in a minute. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, if someone has IBD, Crohn's, and they want to try FMT, what's logistically the process for them doing that? Say they want to see you and you know, talk about it. Yep, great question. So um, for the past eight years, FDA has had guidelines limiting clinicians like us to only treating, to only using C. diff to treat patients, I'm sorry, to only use FMT to treat patients who have C. diff not responding to standard therapies. So you or I could only prepare or administer or prescribe C. diff or prescribe FMT for patients who have C. diff. So that's a limitation. So many patients uh, with IBD do end up getting C. diff, um, but for those who don't, um, they can't have clinicians prepare, administer, or prescribe it for them. So it could still be very, very helpful for them. And in that case, they have two options. Option number one is go to another country where uh, it is allowed. Uh, I've had patients travel to the United Kingdom to the, the Bahamas, to Argentina, to Australia. Um, there was a clinic in Canada for a while. So there are places that allow FMT to be used for are, more conditions. Are there any advocacy or legislative work that's in the works for the U.S. to um, expand the scope you know, of FMT? Or? There is. Uh, I was on the board of directors of the Fecal Transplant Foundation, and um, we did some work around that. And I, I would say it looks like it is unlikely that F uh, FDA is going to reverse their opinion. So um, despite some good advocacy work by us and other foundations, uh, they're moving in another direction and they're trying to get a lab grown microbiome product to replace FMT, which is good in many ways. I'm excited to have more options and lab grown products for my patients. Um, 
but it's also frustrating in some ways because those products will have 5, 10, 20, or 30 um, micro species of microbes in there, whereas the human gut... Yeah, less diverse. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah, 100, 150 or more yeah. species in a given dose. Yeah. So what will it actually be able to help and how much in the same ways? Well, we'll discover that over the next five, 10 years. Got so it. Uh, it looks like uh, the FDA is not going to reverse their opinion and make it more What's allowable. the timeline of the lab-based um, kind of stool? Um... I'm going to say my best guess is a year from today, okay. we will have an FDA-approved product. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I got it. And I, yeah. I thought it was interesting what you said about um, neurodegenerative disease, because that's definitely a interest uh, and focus of, of mine in terms of the practice and brain health. So you said MS, Parkinson's, autism. Definitely really interesting. Um, is Do you know in the case studies or literature on that, is it is it like a certain point in the disease process that it's more effective or have they gotten a, a, a deep dive into that kind of um, So you know, the literature is too sparse. There have been two trials published on autism and only case studies published a, uh, about MS and Parkinson's. Okay. Um, and so I, I would say we, we don't we don't know yet. And looking at the literature on autism and microbiome in general, I would say, no, I'm not an expert in autism, but my guess is the earlier, the better. The earlier it happens, the more profound effect you could Makes potentially sense. have. Yeah. yeah. And with MS and Parkinson's, I'm not sure. I will say the literature is pretty clear that changes in the microbiome happens in Parkinson's up to a decade before the first symptoms start. Yeah. So that is really a microbiome-driven disease in many ways. This idea that the alpha-synuclein that starts out in the gut retrogradely goes up to the brain and causes the depletion, I think, of dopamine and other other um, chemicals, maybe. That, that That's the idea that a lot of these neurodegenerative diseases actually start in the gut. I think start in the gut, yeah, literally start in the gut. They just had a, a basic science study that they released the results of and that a lot of the beta amyloid protein that is found in the brain as you know pathologic beta amyloid plaques is actually starts in the liver. You know, this wow. idea that retrogradely everything's kind of going up the enteric nervous system. So I think that's really yeah. fascinating, but also a little yeah. scary is a lot of these things start decades before. So, True. you know, looking at the gut, you know, this is back to the, the prevention, you know, uh, the, the best the best cure is prevention, right, <laughs> in a way? Very The best true. treatment is prevention. And so looking at the gut microbiome, you know, optimizing, you know, reducing inflammation, balancing the immune system, this may pay really big dividends down the road for, road for even organs like the brain. Absolutely. Amazing. Um, and then where are you on, if someone coming in with IBD and they're on a biologic, let's say, like can that person be given FMT, you know, if they're, oh, sure. if they're on a biologic? Okay. Yeah, I've done that dozens and dozens Got it. of times. Awesome. Okay. Yep. Great. Yep. Great Very safe. Very yeah, safe. Okay. there was um, uh, a, a literature review of, uh, I think about 150 patients with various kinds of immunocompromised biologics, high-dose steroids, HIV AIDS, solid organ transplant, and uh, other things. And uh, FM2 is found to have an excellent safety profile, including zero serious adverse events in anybody on biologic. I mean, it's essentially a very, um, you know, it's not, it's a therapy does, that does not work against the body. It works with the body because the body's used to these microbes and um, really just balancing it more, it sounds like. Um, so, so that's great. Um, uh, What's kind of been your most dramatic uh, success story, I would say, in the, I guess, for IBD, or you could just say you know, whatever you like, I guess. Yeah. 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 There have been a lot. Yeah. One that comes to mind is that yeah. um, uh, I just like his quote. It was a, a, I think, 55 year old male with about a 20 year history of ulcerative colitis. 
um, had been on prednisone for most of 20 years. He was what's called prednisone dependent for a, a, a long time and had other side effects from that. We did FMT and for the first time, the first time in two decades, he went into a medication-free clinical remission. And he called me and said, I can't believe it took me 20 years to find this. You know, thinking That's that I could have maybe amazing. done this 20 years ago. Yeah, so that was a quote that stuck in my head and, and made me want to be um, even more of uh, an advocate for FMT in the yeah, world. Yeah, when you get those type of results and the patient's lives really changing, you know, that that's that's so amazing. Um, I I guess um, we we can talk about um, helminthic therapy. I, I know we've been talking a lot about FMT, but that's another of your interests. So helminthic therapy. Uh, what is helminthic therapy? Uh, for some reason, my mind always goes to helmets and Vikings and stuff like that. So <laughs> yeah, you're not the only one. Yeah, it's uh, helminthic. H e l m i n t h i c. Helminthic. And what a helminth is is a tiny worm-like organism that lives in the guts of vertebrates. So every kind of vertebrate in the world um, has different types of these worm-like mi microorganisms. They're usually microscopic that live in the guts. And I think of them as just another kind of probiotic, another part of the gut ecosystem. Now, just like bacteria and viruses, there are kinds that can hurt you, and there are kinds that are just commensal. They don't, they don't hurt you. They hang out or maybe they're even mutualistic. They actually benefit you. So not everyone um, loitering in the subway is bad. It's what's That's like, absolutely right, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so of course we can think of harmful bacteria, mm -hmm. but there are beneficial bacteria. We call those probiotics. We can think of harmful viruses, but there are actually beneficial viruses in our gut ecosystem. And there are harmful helminths, uh, like elephantiasis, the elephant man, that's caused by a helminth. Uh, there's something called river blindness that makes hundreds of thousands of people get vision, vision impairment every year, that's a helmet. And they're ones that hurt your livers and your kidneys. Um, but those are the bad ones. And, and even the bad ones evade, uh, um, evade detection by your immune system by upregulating tolerance. And the good ones don't cause any substantial harm, and I can talk about that more specifically, while still upregulating tolerance in your body. And so the majority of patients that I see are suffering because their own immune system is wreaking havoc on them. They are not being tolerant enough of their own self. And so when you upregulate tolerance, you downregulate hyperinflammation. And so if you look at populations of wild vertebrates of any kind, fish and birds and primates and every kind of mammal, and even wild humans, the hunter-gatherer humans uh, in Bolivia and in South Africa, um, all those wild type populations, about two thirds of any given population is going to have helminths in their gut at any given point in time. They're a natural part of the vertebrate experience. Um, and what you want is the helpful ones and not the harmful ones. And so um, if you have a hyperinflammatory condition and you bring helminths back into your gut ecosystem, which I've done for myself multiple times, for family members, for many, many patients, even for a colleague on stage at a talk once. Um, if you bring those helmets back into your gut ecosystem, um, then you can experience sometimes dramatic down-regulation of hyperinflammation. I, yeah, there's so many, so many great, uh, uh, just like oh, sub subtopics we could talk about here. But, um, you know, I think the really important thing that I want to just highlight to everyone listening uh, that you just said uh, really beautifully is that 
when the immune system is is um, hyper vigilant, if there's loss of immune tolerance and there's hyperinflammation, you can get things like autoimmune disease. You can get we're living right now at the time it's recording the COVID nineteen pandemic. So basically, there's uh, morbidity and mortality from COVID, you know, hyperinflammation of the lungs, and then long COVID, you know, all these type of things. So a lot of these are caused by inflammatory cytokines, and then like IL-6 and things like that, interleukin-6, but also a loss of immune tolerance, I think, is what's happening in a lot of cases. So a, a, lot, of, a lot of chronic disease, I would say, um, gut, but also other diseases are caused by this loss of immune tolerance. To have some uh, therapy like helminthic therapy that can restore some of that immune tolerance is huge. Um, and so I'm, I'm also kind of wanted to get back to the whole idea of playing with dirt, right? This whole idea that we should probably be gardening and like putting our hands, like not washing our hands yes. all the time, although we recommend that before you eat, you know, you wash your hands. We don't want anyone to get food poisoning or anything. But, um, but there is this idea that I believe, um, if you correct me if I'm wrong, um, Mark, but if you, you know, p- societies and uh, individuals and societies and communities that have have li- you know, are living in a in a more ancestral type of uh, climate or you know upbringing maybe and they they have more exposure to the dirt and to the to the different helmets they colonize the gut they cause immune system tolerance they have less autoimmunity they have less sort of chronic atopy and allergy is that correct that's absolutely true yep yep the the um, more exposure you have to a broad diversity of microbes including microbes associated with other animals domesticated animals, wild animals, soil, wild plants, all of that exposure decreases autoimmune and allergic disease. Yes. There's a great book for anyone interested in going deep on this uh, topic called An Epidemic of Absence, A New Way of Understanding Autoimmune and Allergic Disease um, by Moises Velasquez Manoff. Excellent book that goes into depth and they talk about uh, FMT a bit, they talk about helminthic therapy, but mostly they talk about why it is that um, there's so much autoimmune allergic disease in uh, countries with greater economic resources today. That's awesome. Well, I want to I, I want to get back to helminthic therapy and, and take a deeper dive, maybe on a, another podcast because we're we're covering a lot of broad topics here. So um, yeah. love to have you back for a, a second podcast here. Um, I want to talk about the um, kind of some lifestyle recommendations you might have for people at home to support their gut health in general sort of a general idea is like someone has some gut issues, maybe some bloating, some reflux. Obviously there's different precision medicine that we can do, but what are some of the basic things that people need to consider in terms of lifestyle practices to support their gut health? I like what Michael Pollan had to say about food, which is eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Yeah. He wrote a whole book about food and nutrition and he was like, that's the conclusions that I think we can come to. And by eat food, he meant real food. He meant whole food. And, um, so not macaroni and cheese. Yeah. Not macaroni <laughs> and cheese. Yeah. Okay, so good. the more, the more processed your macaroni is, the more processed your cheese. I mean, those are very highly processed products. Anyway, and, right, um, right. yeah. And so yeah. he means whole food. And so I think, you know, I have four kids and it, uh, the one thing, if you ask them, what does your dad think about nutrition and what, and what is the best thing for people? They'd say, the less processed, the better mm-hmm. in general. That doesn't mean our family doesn't eat any processed it food. It can be hard, especially with kids, absolutely. Well, it's not just hard. It's like food is so many things. Food is health, but food is emotions, and yes. food is socializing, mm-hmm. and food yeah. is uh, you know, convenience. And So there's a million factors to take into place. And to me, health is freedom. And to the degree mm-hmm. to which someone can have you know, pizza and a beer and still feel good, yeah. 
I celebrate that, you know? Um, and I have patients who are like, I never want to have pizza and a beer. And I'm like, great, I celebrate that too. But if you want to, I want to encourage the, your ability to achieve that freedom. And it goes back to, I think, that ability to tolerate pizza and beer. It goes back to, in theory, you know, the health of the gut, but also mindset too. Like, what are you eating the food for? I know we're going to have different podcasts down the line on that and sort of intuitive eating and, and looking at that too. Um, but yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, if, if, if you'd like to, it'd be great to talk about uh, hemolytic therapy a little bit deeper um i would love to time it's awesome we can we can also get into saffron and different things different favorite herbs that you like yes. too. um but let's let's kind of close with some questions we ask all of our guests here on the podcast um thank you so much uh, mark for being on here today um do you have a morning routine and you know is that affected with uh with the four kids or you know just kind of curious about that oh yeah yeah my morning routine really really changes with the season so in the summer, I am staying up later and I'm sleeping later and I'm eating more raw foods and um, I have more outdoor exercise yeah. as opposed to indoor exercise, uh, you know, running in the woods near our house, et cetera. Nice. Um, but right now it's getting colder. The school year just started. So a lot of our morning routines are about reestablishing that rhythm of, uh, you know, getting up and having all the kids have their breakfast and be ready for school and getting out the door and um, getting myself ready for work. So uh, yeah, more more cooked foods and warm foods and indoor exercise. So yeah, the, the morning routine definitely changes throughout the and, year. And I feel like our microbiomes are also seasonal. They probably change with our lifestyle and the temperature and the humidity and the foods we eat and all of that stuff too. Probably oh, that's absolutely rhythm. true. Great. Um, what book or podcast are you enjoying the most right now? And what is it about Ooh. and why do you like it? Ah, great question. Um, I just finished reading uh, Oliver Sacks' book, Hallucinations. Nice. Uh, for if uh, any of your listeners don't know about Oliver Sacks, he's America's favorite, favorite neurologist author. Uh, he died about five years ago, but brilliant writer, brilliant doctor. The movie Awakenings with Robin Williams. Robin Williams oh, is playing his yeah. him in that movie. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, Dr. Sacks describes the wide gamut of hallucinations that he knows about and encountered as a practice neurologist, practicing neurologist, um, everything from Charles Bonnet syndrome to Parkinson's associated hallucinations and uh, drug-induced hallucinations and other things. And he's just such a good writer and, uh, and, and describes the human condition in medicine and in life just so well that I love him as a writer. Great. I have to check that out. And then the, the final and most important question, what do you do every day to cultivate joy? <laughs> oh, great question. <laughs> Um, well, I have four kids and three dogs, so there's a lot of, uh, organic joy. Bundle that of joy comes, is right there. Yeah. Bundles, bundles <laughs> of, and parenting can be frustrating and it's so much work, but, uh, so much yeah. joy with that. Yeah. And I guess I would say just taking the time to listen to my own needs and wants is probably my biggest habit that keeps me joyful. That's huge. Yeah. I also find that that to be really, really helpful. Connecting back to the center, you know, back to the, back to your own center. And, um, and then, uh, that's great. Thank you so much. And then how can listeners learn more about you and work with you, Dr. Davis? Uh, well, I'm right here at Capital Integrative Health. So calling or emailing the clinic to get an appointment, or you can write, read things that I've written or watch interviews with me at markdavisnd.net. That's M-A-R-K-D-A-V-I-S-N-D, like Nancy David, .net. Uh, and there's a section on writing and some interviews. There's a TEDx talk that I did and, and nice. other things. So you can find out more there. 
Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on today and love, love to see you again on the next one. Yep, same. Great to see you.